Welcome to another episode of Saturday Java with Jason, where we bring on great guests and have awesome conversations. I have my black coffee. <sighs> Let's welcome our guest for today. In, in those days, now I turned 18 in 1943. I was born in 25. In those days, when you're, as soon as your 18th birthday came around, two weeks after that birthday, they sent you a letter which said, please report to your nearest draft board. So I reported immediately to my nearest draft board and we were dying to get into the fight. But at the time in America, it looked bad. The, the Germans had taken all of Europe. The Japanese were almost down to Australia. And we couldn't wait to get into the fight. So as soon as we reported to the draft board, we said we wanted to volunteer. No, you go home until we call you. They were building training camps fast enough, I guess. The story is that I became 18 in March of 43. I had to wait till October before they finally took me in. Yes. There was no volunteering at that time. In other words, when I when I registered for the draft as they told me to, I wanted to volunteer. No, you wait until we call you. And then when they called me, October, I tried to volunteer. They said, you report to Camp Upton right outside of New York City, and we'll swear you in. Now, one more time. We had no choice. There was nothing. You, you couldn't volunteer. You had to just go along with what the draft board said. And then once you got in, now the army takes over. Uh, they give you a battery of tests. And, and then an officer sits down with you and says, Ah, Esperanza, you did in mechanical aptitude. You like tanks? And I said, Yeah. Do you like artillery? Yeah, and uh, you did. They go through a whole series of things that I qualified for, and then takes a big stamp infantry, which is what we wanted anyway. Because if you want to get into the fight, that's where it is. So, from Camp Upton, all of a sudden they shipped us to Fort Benning, Georgia. Now, most of us hadn't been more than 20 miles from home and so on. Now, this was the big adventure. We, uh, By the way, we, we were innocent kids right out of high school. Uh, we, most of us were still virgins. And then uh, we, we get to Fort Benning, Georgia, get off the bus, and a big sergeant comes out. So he lines us up in front of him, and he says, my name is Masterelli. You got it? And we said, yes, sir. He said, don't give me that search. You saved that for the officers. Sergeant Masterelli. And I got 19 weeks to turn you little students into soldiers. You got it? And we said, yes, sir. All you got to remember is when Masterelli says jump, you say how high and how far. That's all you got to know. Yes, I now get into those barracks and come out looking like soldiers. We were scared. <laughs> we jumped, we ran into the barracks, we found the uniforms, and, and, and I assure you, Jason, 
in the 19 weeks, he did turn us from innocent kids into soldiers. We, and we lapped it up. We, were, we couldn't wait to get into the fight, look bad. And, and now the 19 weeks of training is over. And so when, when we got finished with the 19 weeks of training, we expected, okay, now we're going over, right? No, you got to come back for four more weeks of advanced infantry training. Okay, four more weeks. Now we're going to do that. No, you got to go come back for two more weeks of heavy weapons training. Finally, we said, when the hell are we going to get into this fight? All right, we finished the two weeks. Now, right? No, you have to be assigned to a line outfit. And then the, you, you go with them. Uh, so I was sent to the 87th Infantry Division at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And we're saying, now nah, we're going to get into the fight, right? Maneuvers in Tennessee, jungle training in Florida. When the hell are we going to get into this fight? One day they took us out to a, a big field and they said, there's going to be a demonstration today. And we said, what kind of demonstration? And shut up and sit down. Yes, sir. Came out of the sky. And we see the, the doors open. And guys throwing themselves out the door. A little white thing taking them to the ground. And, and the paratroops were brand new in World War II. And, and we, we, we were just amazed with our mouths open. And all of a sudden... These guys come running up, line up in front of us. Big, beautiful guys, shiny silver wings and jump boots, uh, shiny jump boots with the pants bloused. And the only paratroopers were allowed to do that then blouse the pants and the jump boot. And, and, and the captain says, all right, this is the United States Parachute Corps. We're looking for a few good men. You have to have had your 19 weeks, your four weeks, and your two weeks. And who wants to volunteer? And we went, whoa. And then, but wait a minute. <laughs> Throw yourself out of an airplane? And he said, and there's 50 bucks extra a month jump pay. We put our, they took seven of us back to Fort Benning, only this time, the jump school. Well, I, I can't I, I can't begin to tell you how much we loved what was happening to us in jump school. In the infantry, you walk 30-mile hikes, and the paratroops, 50-mile hikes. Uh, infantry, you walk every place, and the paratroops, you double time every place, and so on. They built us into... By the time we got out of jump school, Jason, we were ready to take on a whole damn German army by ourselves. So we were... They, they gave us confidence. They built us into real physical machines. We couldn't wait to get overseas. And the along the way, there were little adventures and misadventures. They're all in the book. But the one I want to tell you about is while we were in training there at Fort Benning, every once in a while, the Army gave us what they called spaghetti. <laughs> and we, especially we Italian-Americans, said, what the hell do you call this crap? And we used to, I used to bitch and complain. And I said, 
you to the guys, you you think this is something. If we ever get anywhere near New York, I'll bring it to my mother's house and, and let you taste some real spaghetti. And uh, they said, well, where do we get sent before going overseas? Camp Shanks, New York, an hour and 45 minutes from my mother's house. So when we got there, all right, Spranza, what about all that crap that you're going to take us home for a real spaghetti dinner? I said, okay, okay, let me call my mother. So I called my mother. And she, oh, I said, I got a day pass. I can come home for the for the day. She said, oh, I'll cook you a nice dinner. And, and then I said, my what? When I was in, the, <laughs> I was talking to the guys. I said, if we ever came in, the army used to give us something terrible. I said, I'd let them taste real spaghetti at your house. Uh, she said, sure, sure. Uh, how many? I said, 18. And she said, 18? One whole stick, my my uh, one stick is uh, on the plane, and and we. She said, "How much time have I got?" I said, "Oh, we'll be there for three or four hours." Oh, she says, said, "Don't worry about it. Bring you know my four sisters. Oh yeah, bring all the guys in. The mom will help you and so on. So on. Well, that evening, three car loads of guys." all pulling out of my mother's a small home modest home and and the whole neighborhood going crazy looking 18 guys pulling out of cars and going into my mother's house all young paratroopers and my mother had everything set up tables set in all different direction and and seating for 20 people my sisters all couldn't were falling all over themselves trying to serve and doing things and my mother pulled me aside. She said, listen, Vinny, that when we have spaghetti, we always have a glass of wine. But these boys are all under 18. The, the 21 is the drinking age. Uh, what are, I said, hey, we're going to fight for the country. Yeah, put the wine out too. Consequently, there was a uh, pitcher of wine at each table. Uh, consequently, by the end of the meal, uh, there's 18 guys feeling pretty good. And we decided to put on a demonstration jump out my mother's window. The whole neighborhood went crazy. Seeing these guys jump, Geronimo, run around in front of the building and piling in again. Well, we had a wonderful evening and a lot to talk about on our way overseas. But now the reason I mention this one is that, that, that that's not the end of the story. Fast forward to 2019, I think. I was invited to the Pentagon to a tour. One of my general friends invited me for, for a tour. And one of the generals there uh, made like a speech introducing me and saying things and so on and so on. And he said, he was talking about the superiority of the airborne soldier. And he said, but sometimes our troopers get into it. Like when Vinny took... 18 men home to his mother's house for a spaghetti dinner. <gasps> they were setting me up. They were going to giving me the Soldier for Life medal. But I got all finished time up there. I said, sir, listen, I said, I, I'm, I'm curious. How the hell did I took 18 men home to my mother's house for dinner? He said, listen, soldier, I'm a general officer in the Army of the United States, and I do my homework. <laughs> he said, besides, I read your book. Well, one more time, 
about three years ago, I get an email from a, a lady Dutch officer from the Dutch army that I knew in Europe from the very beginning. She was one of the people that I met there and, and stayed friends with and so on and so on. And she was the public relations officer in the Dutch army, in NATO, NATO Dutch army. So I get an email from her saying, then what she said, I, I just changed jobs. I said, really? She said, yeah, I'm no longer the NATO officer for public relations. Instead, she said, I'm working for the Overloom Museum. Overloom Museum. It's the largest museum in Holland and in Western Europe. And she said, I, I'm the public relations director for the, this great museum. And, and she said, I, I was talking to my boss one time about uh, you, and he sounded interesting. So I gave him your book to read. When he read the book, he came back to me and said, Jan, do this guy? She said, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. He said, would he come here and help with some information? She said, I'm, I'm sure he would. What's the story? He said, I'm adding three new displays to the museum. He said, she said, oh, really? She said, which, which ones? He said, well, one is the machine gun kid. The foxhole, the snow and everything around, and, and the first battle. The second one will have to be about the Holocaust when he liberated the concentration camp there and so on and so on. And the third one is going to be when he took 18 men to his mother's house for spaghetti dinner. He said, and when the people finished looking at the display, they were going to sit them all down and give him a spaghetti dinner with Vince's mother's original Sicilian recipe. You, would he come? And she said, oh, I'm sure he would. And there you go again. The spaghetti in the biggest museum in, in, in all of Europe. And, and when he brought me over there, he called his chef out. He said, he said now pay attention. He said, this man is going to tell you exactly what the formula is for the ancient Sicilian spaghetti dinners, and you have got to duplicate it or you're fired. He said, pay attention. So I told him, hey, you got to do this, you got to have that. And the chef, uh, and he goes in the kitchen, and he said, to come back in two hours. So we were touring the museum. In a couple hours, come back. He had to let it simmer, and he brought the stuff out. I swear he had a down pat. I, I mean, it tasted just like my mother's. And I said, hey, just a little bit less sugar. You made it a little too sweet. But other than that, it's absolutely perfect. But they advertised all over the Europe uh, newspapers. The museum has three new displays. And one is the machine gun kid. The other one is the Holocaust. And the third one is... Vince's mother's original spaghetti dinner, which after you look at the display, you're going to sit down to, to a dinner. And they said the, the, the first day, the normal attendance, 300, they had 750, the next one, 1,000. And they said, what a, a successful run for the rest of the season. And so I said to myself, 
well, how, how, how much more am I going to get out of that story? Uh, so, uh, getting back to the war, we got overseas in November. I, we, we were on the Queen Mary, which had been turned into a troop ship. And I, I, I could write another book about the adventures on that thing. There were 30 men assigned to each little stateroom. The stateroom was for two people and civilians, but they had 15 pipe rank bunks. In other words, on three walls, there were five pipe bunks with a piece of canvas stretched between them. And the fourth wall had the bathroom and, and a shower. But salt water showers, then they, they didn't have enough fresh water on that. But going overseas, we we just spent all our time in line. You got to line up starting in the morning for to get breakfast. You only get fed twice a day. Then you got to get online for 50 million more hours to wash your mess gear. And then it was a very boring thing going overseas. We we landed. We, the Queen could only dock in Southampton, and at that time. The Germans were in control of that part of the channel. And so she docked instead off Scotland and on small boats, they took us ashore, put us on trains and drove us down to a place called Hungerford in England, where uh, we were housed for a while. And then finally they uh, flew us to Northern France to a place called Camp Mormelon where the 101st Airborne Division beat up, left half of its equipment. The market garden operation was a complete failure. They, they, they lost 3,000 men, and, and they and, and the 82nd both almost got captured by the, the whole damn division was cut off because of a stupid defense plan. But, but whatever the story was, the 101st Airborne Division was in bad shape. And it was supposed to be given 90 days of rest, rehabilitation, replacements, and, and resupply. Well, I was there in November. And the 90 days of rest, rehabilitation was not to be. Nobody knew that Hitler had saved up 25 German divisions. Nine of them were panzer divisions. There's 18,000 men in each division. And he was making a last desperate attempt to change the war. The plan was to go from Germany across Belgium to Antwerp. That's the Belgian seaport there, which was our port of entry. It's where our supplies, equipment, and so on came in. What they had hoped to do was capture the port of Antwerp, deny us the supplies and have the supplies for themselves. And that, that move would have separated the British and Canadian armies in the north from the American armies in the south and change the war. It, 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 it was, it was a, a change. Their problem was to get from Germany to Antwerp, right in the middle here, there was a little town called Bastogne. And uh, it was yeah, a small village, four or 5,000 people, but it was a transportation hub. It had five roads uh, coming in. 
two railroads going through it to Antwerp and so on. And the Germans had to take that town if they wanted to get to Antwerp. And Eisenhower said to the 101st Airborne Division, come as you are, get up there and hold it. And I remembered like this, the barrack lights come on, sergeant and the lieutenant, hey, we're going up. We said, you know, you're crazy, the ground's frozen, we'll all break our legs. You're not jumping, you're going up in trucks. All I could think of was all my airborne training, all my jumping, so I'm gonna make my first jump off the back of a truck. But right after that, from all over the barracks, Sarge, I don't have a helmet. I don't have a rifle. I, I was a machine gunner without a machine gun. I had a trench knife in my boot. And, and we, we all started, I, I don't have, a, none of us had winter clothes. And, and for some stupid reason, they made us turn in our jump boots for the winter and put on these stupid combat boots, which are, what a disaster. Well, I'll tell you about that in a minute. But the, the story was, they later told us the figure of the 101st Airborne Division that went to Bastogne was unarmed. And when we decided that, stop bitching, make a list, and, and we'll stop along the way. And we believed it. Oh, okay. So we took a piece of paper, and we made a nice, I need a... Like 30 machine gun, I need at least eight or nine tins of ammo. I need this and that. Guys, I need a helmet, I need a rifle, I need this, I need that. We also we need gloves and hats. You know, what stop? The the miracle of that day was that they moved a whole division 130 miles north in a day and a night, just in time. They got there one day before the Germans arrived. Just long enough to dig in, and we—I wrote a poem. It's it, it's in the back of my book uh, about the hungry, tired soldiers did pour from off the trucks with their packs, and told to dig a hole in the ground, and the ground was frozen. And the luckily we had the new shovel that you could bend when and did. And you whack the ground, it bounces back in your face, and you whack it, and it bounces in your face, and you whack it. Finally, you whack enough to get through the first 12 inches. Then, then you run into all the tree roots from that was this. And it, it took us over four, and machine gunners got to dig a two man hole. And about four hours later, middle of the night, we finally flopped down, exhausted. We had had no food or water since we got off the trucks. And we were hoping that we're going to get a little rest and, and then get fed and, and water. No, in the middle of the night, hey, get up, we're moving out. Oh, no. We got to go dig in over there. We go, oh, my goodness, got to see you pick up your gun, go over there. And you can barely dig a shallow ditch there. You couldn't dig a park home. We were exhausted. We'd had it, so we just lay down and, all right, we're moving. Oh, no. Oh, no, that's all. The third place where we were moved, we just scraped the snow on the side and laid down on the ground and held it. We were, we were, no matter how young and strong you are, there's only so much you can do. That morning, 
the fog was all the way down to the ground. When we when daylight came, we couldn't see anything. You could barely see the next guy's foxhole. And then everything's quiet. The, the fog starts to lift like a blanket all at once. The fog starts to lift. And all at once, like a blanket all at one time, rising up. And when we could see under it, in front of me, I was in a forward foxhole. There was an open field, sort of a narrow one, with woods on both sides. And we were amazed that, you mean, they're going to attack across that open field? But And when the fog lifted high enough for you to be able to stand up and look out and see what's beyond, Jason, the whole world went on fire. You cannot believe... The ground, the ground shook like, like it was an earthquake. The big guns, everything, artillery, the Luftwaffe came in and bombed the shit out of us. The, the, everything's still quiet at the other end. And then all of a sudden, you see at the far end, they're small figures because they're 800 yards away. But you see the German infantry coming up in line. And we said, we're going to give you a big surprise. But then four tanks pull out, two from each side of the woods. Now there's four tanks coming up on my position. And a machine gunner can do a lot of damage to certain things. But the tanks, you're a joke. And, and the artillery now starts coming and the tanks are, are firing point blank into the foxhole they, they, they were masters with that 88 gun that they had on the tank and 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 later on as artillery when they hit a, a, a foxhole the guy disappears his rifle goes floating but the sergeants came on get your head down get your head down get your head down let the tanks go by as, as though we could do anything about it and so we buried our nose and cursed yourself for not digging the foxhole deeper. And the artillery now rolls past us as the tanks approach us. And way back we see the German infantry starting up the up the path, up up the field. And the lieutenant is yelling in all directions, just keep your head down, keep your head down, keep your head down. Let the tanks go by, and uh, we're going to give their infantry a surprise. They had just, the Germans had just destroyed four American divisions on the in, uh, Ardennes line. 4th, 28th, 128th, and the 9th Armored. 25 German divisions coming at these four. Destroyed them as fighting units. And, and they didn't know this was the 101st Airborne Division in there. They expected to do the same thing, romp right through this on their way to Antwerp. But thanks, goodbye. The artillery is no longer dropping on us. And when the Germans got up to about the 400 yards, the lieutenant set, set the sights for 400 yards and, and wait and wait and wait. When he gives the word, they got such a big surprise. They looked surprised and shocked. What the hell? The tanks were supposed to have destroyed the front line. But to make a long story short, we slaughtered them, Jason. 
the, the snow turned red and and the machine gun does a lot of damage and, and I I got a bronze star for my first battle there because as they started around the edges there one of the places where the attack looked like good and they turned me loose on that and I, I, I prevented that flanking of the line well, whatever story was they wrote me up for a brother but we stopped them cold and they turned around and started back now when the tanks realized that their infantry is not behind them they got to go back on their way back McCullough's artillery opened up and destroyed in front of me three of the four tanks were, were uh, destroyed the last one was like limping back into town and the the the, the march was on now hey this isn't a bunch of people that you're going to scare out of the foxhole this is airborne troops and what they decided to do was just pull back and surround us which is what they did the next day they surrounded us and they they captured the field hospital now there were 12,000 of us in that town and 156,000 Germans out there all with the latest equipment and we had limited food limited ammunition no winter clothes but what did we have fucking balls the 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 training we got and the confidence we had I thought hey come on come on baby we when they captured the field hospital, they had all the beds, blankets, they shot the American personnel, except for the doctors. They, they kept five of our doctors to serve in their army. One doctor and one Belgian nurse escaped into the town. And they that was our medical team for the whole damn eight days of the roughest battle in the world. And, and there's a whole story just right there. At any rate, I got two of those and two bronze stars and the French Legion of Honor and it's all in the in the book, which by the way, this is my book, Amazon.com, twenty bucks. And at any rate, my friend, the book is named Nuts, and it's a very famous phrase because during the siege of Bastogne. At one time, by the third day, everybody thought that we were in very bad. We were in bad shape, but uh, nobody was going to kick. The Germans came in and asked us to surrender. And General McAuliffe is supposed to have said, surrender? Nuts. Later on, when we heard the story, the the frontline troops, we said, McAuliffe, in answer to a German demand for surrender, Surrender said, nuts. I'm sure his proper response could not be printed. But but that's the way it went down in the books. And the newspapers picked it up. Big deal. Americans are asked to surrender. And the response is, nuts. So that's the name of my book. And at any rate, my friend got hit in both legs. And I'm going to be finishing up soon. I got to tell you this one story that, that's famous all over the internet now. My friend got hit in both legs and it took him back to the house. The only two places in the whole town. Now, the Luftwaffe had been in there twice. The whole town was flat except for the church 
and the seminary across the street from the church. They had stone walls. The rest of the town, wooden houses, they had all been bombed flat. And when my friend got hit, we had no place to put the wounded except the floor of the church. The movies show you little nice cots and nurses. No, pal, not this fight. On the floor of the church, and we were sent through the houses to pull the uh, drapes, uh, curtains, bedspreads, whatever we could find to wrap them in, because the Germans had all the blankets and the morphine. And, and those of us that had two blankets donated one to the wounded. We were all freezing anyway. It didn't make any damn difference. And so when my friend got hit, they took him back to the church and they laid him uh, on the floor of the church. Now the doctor, all he had was his own personal instruments. Candlelight from the church, candles were all he had to operate by. And so on. In other words, we lost a lot of people had we had a decent field hospital that would be around today. But the, the, the story is, uh, when my friend got hit, my sergeant sent me back to uh, look for some batteries for the radio, and I went to look for my friend. His name was Joe Willis. And I get, I, I see him pitiful. He had a curtain wrapped around his neck. And uh, Joe, how you doing? Uh, he said, ah, nothing. I got a couple of shrapnel leg. I'll be out of here tomorrow. I said, you better here tomorrow. He said, yeah, uh, tomorrow, next day, whatever it is. Tell the guys, don't worry, I'm okay. Just a couple of pieces of leg, and I'll be back up there pretty soon. And I said, well, that's great, Joe. We need you. I got to go back. Anything I can do for you before I leave? He said, yeah, go find me something to drink. Joe, where the hell am I going to find you something to drink? We're surrounded and cut off, and there are no supplies coming in it. He said, go look in the taverns. Joe, the taverns are all bombed flat. Go look anyway, you might get lucky. Hey, your foxhole buddy wants a drink, you, you're going to go look for a drink. It's snowing. This is the picture. It's snowing hard, not the, the kind that hurts your face and so on, so on. Artillery is dropping in all around the church, and I'm slopping down the road looking for a tavern. I'm dodging doorway to doorway, shells are dropping in all around. I see a tavern going all broken glass, beams are shot down, they're, they're, they're absolutely nothing. I come out of there, went further down the road, but the second tavern I went into, and there's a picture of this one in the book, the second tavern still had a bar. And when I pulled the, the beer handle, beer came out. And I said, oh, now this, by the way, this story has over 4 million something hit. I'll tell you about that in a minute. This is the famous beer story. And, and I looked around for a bottle or something to put the beer in. There was nothing. So I took off my helmet. The same when you're using the foxhole. I swished a little snow in it, and I filled it up with beer. Back to the town, to the, to the church. Hey, Joe, I got some beer. And he said, whoa. So he's sitting up, and I'm, I'm feeding him beer from the helmet. Hey, give me some of that. Uh, hey, give me some of that. Hey, give me some of that. Hey, give me some of that. I was like an old mother cow there, giving everybody a mouthful of beer. The, the, guy, the, the wounded guy's on the floor of the church. I ran out. Joe says, go get some more. 
Jesus, go get some more. Okay, then when I went back to the tavern, this time when I stepped out the door of the tavern with a beer, a shell landed nearby, knocked me down and spilled most of the beer and so on. But I wasn't hurt, so I got up and went back to the church. Only this time, standing in the doorway like this, is the regimental surgeon, Major Walkman. I'm a private. He said, what the hell do you think you're doing, soldier? I said, sir, bringing aid and comfort to the wounded? He said, you stupid jacket. Don't you I got chest cases and stomach cases in there? You give me, you'll kill him? Yeah, therefore I have you shot. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And put that helmet on. I was already cold. Now I was wet and cold, but I ran like hell back to the foxhole before he changed his mind. And and I could write another book about the next four hours of how the guys all tried to keep me from freezing solid, pounding the water out of my clothes, gathering around it. That's another whole story. But at any rate, it was an incident that happened during the war, right? It was a thousands of incidents like that. And I really forgot that story. 65 years later, when I went back to the war for the first time to visit the battlefields, first of all, I I got a full smack in the mouth. They showed me my foxhole where I had fought for the eight days in Pastel. And they, you know, I had my daughter with me. And I, everything that I had put in the back of my head, trying to forget about the war, came back and hit me in the face like, like a cement block. And, and I, I couldn't even hear the artillery again. And I, you know, I fell apart. I was 85 years old at the time. You don't have control anymore. And, so my daughter pulled me aside and said, Marco, listen, my father's seen enough. Let's go home. We'll come back tomorrow or something, okay? And I said, uh, and they said, okay. On the way back, I asked the two guys if I could take them to lunch. Marco and Johnny Boner, he was a Belgian tank commander. And uh, they said, yes. We're in uh, the dining room of my, my hotel. The fancy... Please. And we sit down and I ordered three bottles of wine. I said, I don't like the way I feel. We're going to change the mood. Well, you put three bottles of wine and three old soldiers together. Guess what? <laughs> we embarrassed my daughter. We're talking loud and making stories and yelling. In the mountains. And so Johnny Boner was a Belgian tank commander. He, he starts telling stories about... Uh, Belgian tanks. Marco was a big Dutch paratroop officer, and he thought about he fought in Bosnia and in, in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and so on. And when it came my turn, I wanted to change the stories. Uh, I, I told them the beer story. I told them, you know what? This is happening. Now, while I'm telling the story, they're going, you? You were the GI who brought beer and the helmet to the... I said, yeah. They said, you, the, the wounded guys on the floor of the church, you gave them all a, a mouthful of beer. I said, yeah. They said, man, they said, don't you, you're famous in Europe? 
I said, come on, what the hell are you talking about? Said, waiter, bring us four bottles of airborne beer. And the waiter comes back on a tray with four bottles of beer and four little ceramic bowls in the shape of a GI helmet that they serve it out of called airborne. And the label on the bottle of beer shows an American paratrooper with a helmet full of beer going like this. I can show you. Can you see this eye? This is the helmet that they serve it in. Here was the bottle. You see the label, the, the paratrooper, it's supposed to be me, except they made me a redhead. They said, nobody thought that was a true story. Everybody thought that was a World War II baloney story, a legend, this old guy who said, well, I guess I said, we straightened everybody out. It's a true story. And they couldn't believe it. So, before I went home, they gave me six bottles of beer to, to bring home. When I got home, the, the newspaper, the state newspaper, the statewide newspaper called. I said, hey, we, we heard a story about you. Could we come interview you? And I said, sure. So they came to my house the next morning, but with, with a photographer. And the reporter got the story, and, and you can Google this picture uh, on your cell phone. The, the, and, and, and then they, he took a picture of me behind, uh, in my kitchen, behind the six bottles of beer showing the labels up front. The next morning, they put it on the front page of the newspaper. Somebody took it from the newspaper? and put it on the internet. I became more famous for what I did with a helmet full of beer than what I did with my machine gun the whole war. And uh, that story, by the way, if you Google airborne beer, you, you'll see the picture and me telling the story and so on, or you Google YouTube, there's videos of it. At any rate, back to the war, uh, I'm winding up. Back to the war, we broke out in, uh, on, on December 26th. We were in there the 18th. Patton broke through on the 26th, and then uh, we had been resupplied. And so now we went on the offensive. And the rest of the war, we were kicking the Germans all the way back to Berlin. And I had a couple of good adventures in there and so on. And the Holocaust, I, I told you about that. Uh, I don't even like to talk about that one, but I describe it well in the book. And I was shocked with the rest of our people when in June of 45, we were told the 101st Airborne Division was being dissolved. And uh, all the high point men from the 101st and the 82nd went home. And, and uh, the low point men, the kids, went to the 82nd and I spent the rest of the war in Europe. The war was over in May, but from May until November, just dying to go home. And so in December of 45, we finally got home. The, we then had a big Parade, a ticket tape parade down Fifth Avenue, the 82nd Airborne Division. 
And about 10 days after that, I was discharged and I became a civilian. Now, in my book, I tell the rest of the story, and, and I, I go into detail about what I did after the war. I became a seaman for a while. And then I went to college and got married, kids, grandkids. I got seven great grandkids now. And, and I, I'm 98 now, but I'm still kicking. I, I travel. I, okay. And I, uh, I got some local stuff. The expression in Italian is, quando passa la quarantina, un guai ogni mattina, which means when you get by 50, you got a new pain every morning, <laughs> which it took a long time for me to get there because I, I just stayed in, in good shape. And, and only lately have I had a whole bunch of stuff, but the, the docs are fixing me up. I have no intention of quitting. I have no intention of staying home until I can no longer physically make it. And that's the end of my story. Please give us a five-star review. It does help out the podcast. Please visit the website, SaturdayJavaWithJason.com. If you want to contact us, it's SaturdayJavaWithJason at gmail.com. Please subscribe and follow us. We are on all the major podcast sites. Until next time, have love, have fun, and have I octane coffee. Thanks for listening. Please come back next time for more fun and exciting guests.